0: This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Gardening is, for me and many fellow gardeners, about forging a meaningful relationship with place. With the place with which and on which we make our own lives. For mother, writer, and gardener Christy Purifoy, this expands out into a greater notion of a calling she refers to as place making. Christy lives in rural Pennsylvania with her husband, her four children, many trees, and her beloved garden. She's the author of several books about her relationships with the places of her life. These books include Roots and Sky and her newest, Placemaker, Cultivating Places of Comfort, Beauty, and Peace. Christy is also the co-host of a podcast entitled Out of the Ordinary. Christy joins us today to share more about her own sense of place and her community building and peacemaking practice. She joins us from her home garden, Maplehurst. Welcome, Christy.
1: Thank you. What a beautiful introduction. And I'm so looking forward to our conversation.
0: You know, I, I want to start off which is how I almost always start off with having you describe for listeners and to kind of set the stage visually, Christy, for us of what your current garden and place making practice look like on the ground every day.
1: Oh, I'm so glad to start there because place matters so much. And I think, uh, It's important to remember that you and I are both placed right now as we're having this conversation. We're both speaking out of our places. And so the the place that I am speaking out of right now, in fact, I just wandered in from the garden. I was out um, checking out my roses because the roses are just now having their first flush. Uh And I just can hardly bear to be away from them. (laughs) (laughs) So the roses are growing uh, at a place we call, actually it's been called for many years before us, Maplehurst. It's an old red brick farmhouse built in 1880. It's in southeastern Pennsylvania. So um, we're sort of between the cities of uh, Philadelphia and Lancaster. We have uh, Amish country to the west and horse farms and old William Penn colonial farmhouses to the east of us. And uh, I have about five acres here, although, um, of course, <laughs> I don't garden all five. Um, I wish that I could, but uh, <laughs> those four children keep, keep me busy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, be, I began, I, I really feel as if I, I, have grown into gardening at this place. I did it here and there before moving here, but it has um, consumed much more of my life in this place. And I began as a, as growing vegetables. I wanted to grow good food and for myself and my family. But more and more, I have become a flower gardener. I am cultivating beauty, and <laughs> I can't always defend it, other than to say, well, we maybe we can't eat most flowers, but I love love flowers and they bring me so much joy. So I'm turning more and more of my raised raised beds over to
0: flowers. (laughs) You also have a great many trees on this place. And I I would love to have you describe those because they will become important in the larger part of our conversation. And they really structured a lot of how you started to become a gardener in this place or to, to deepen your gardening Um, work and knowledge in the place that you are now.
1: That's absolutely right. I mean, not only does this home take its name from the trees that grow around it, these maples, we have silver maples and Norway maples and sugar maples, but I think trees are important because they are really on the, they quite literally inhabit the edge between the land that is given to us, the land we inherit and the land we are remaking or making or cultivating. And so I have inherited these century old trees, many of which are are dying. They're at the end of their life and they need care and they need cleanup and they need someone to cry when they, when they fall. Mm. Um, but I'm also planting trees. I'm planting, you know, little babies. And I'm, I I, just this morning, I was out watering a new crab apple that I found a spot for just this week. And so trees, I feel like are, are just on that edge between, um, those aspects of the land that are so much bigger than me, so much, uh, longer lived And then my own contributions to the land and the place. So as much as I love my roses and I love all my flowers and uh, most of my gardening time is spent cultivating these flowers, when I think of what it means to be rooted in this place, and then it is all about the trees. Mm -hmm. And so the stories I tell about this place and what it means to me to be a placemaker always come back to the trees.
0: Yeah. And that's, it's really beautifully outlined and, um, celebrated and explored very explicitly in the book, the newest book, Placemaker. But I was before we get into that, I want to – which you segued us beautifully to – I want to try and have you articulate in its most simplistic way – what do you mean when you use the term placemaker because it's long and storied and complex and you have a wonderful hashtag that you use called um, we are placemakers. What do these phrases mean to you and, and in their biggest but also most simplistic form?
1: Mm-hmm. I had this word before I really understood what it meant. I had started using this word as a way to sort of capture all my loves, my love for home and, mm. and gardening. And I thought I knew what it meant. I thought it meant before I sat down to write this book that we, um, as humans in the world on the earth change places for the better. So let, and that is a valuable work. And there is still an aspect of that in the word placemaker. (laughs) But writing down these stories, I realized, oh, no, placemakers aren't just the ones running around changing things and planting trees. Placemakers are the one who keep a place. So sometimes that means they just protect a place. They don't change anything. They keep a place. They tend a place. Maybe they cultivate that place. So perhaps a more poetic way of saying it is that placemakers are the ones who are willing I think, to sink their roots into a place, which means they're willing to love a place and let that place love them back and nourish them in return. So I have my my view of placemaking has really changed uh, through the writing. I have a much more, I like to think, uh, humble <laughs> uh, <laughs> view of placemaking today than I did when I sat down to write these stories.
0: Yeah. Okay, so then we're going to get into all of the nuance there best we can with the time we have, Christy. Mm -hmm. But take us back to your earliest influences and set the scene for us of maybe the, you know, the primary places or plants or people that grew you into the, the plant loving and place respecting person you are.
1: For me, it goes back to my dad. My dad had grown up on a Texas farm, a North Texas farm. And so not only had he grown up, you know, where the family's livelihood depended on the land. But his mother, his grandmother, and his great-grandmother also grew flowers. And so some of the uh, stories that he would pass on to me were about these scented irises or just all the flowers that uh, his great-grandmother in in particular grew. And so uh, when I was growing up, we weren't living on a farm. We just had a very typical suburban backyard. And yet in my memory, it um, it it was a world within a world. It was a magical place where my father was growing uh, productive things like fruit trees and a a few vegetables, but mostly roses. And so uh, I think that would be actually the next thing that really influenced me is that my father often took us, um, he had four kids, the four of us, to the Antique Rose Emporium, which Mm. is a really special place in uh, Independence, Texas. And I think all of that just... Well, it, it was a magic way, you know, sort of magical relationship to the land growing up. Um, but I'll be honest, at that time, I would have never, and, you know, even, you know, especially through my adolescence and even as a young woman, I would have never guess that I would become a gardener. But I think all of that beauty, um, if it it soaks into you as a kid and then you, you grow up and you move away from it. And then over time you become hungry for it. And I think I was hungry for that beauty and especially those antique roses, uh, for a long time before I even recognized really what the hunger was. And so it it does, it's a generational thing and I can trace it back, back, back all the way to, to my own great, great grandmother, but Texas in other ways was not magical. It's, um, (laughs) you know, the climate's very different from where I live now in Pennsylvania. And I say I wasn't very well suited to that heat and humidity. (laughs) Mm. I think the other thing was that I was a reader and I read books like The Secret Garden about, you know, cool springtime English gardens with their daffodils. And that Mm -hmm. was not the landscape I was growing up in, but it gave me another, a different vision of a garden. And uh, so when I stepped outside and it was hot and sticky and I was eaten up by mosquitoes, I would say, okay, you know, nature is not for me. The garden is not for me. But then I would step back into my books and i would think oh but maybe maybe cuz you know the these words are describing things that i want and so then it was just the process of growing up and living in many places and, and really searching for the place that would feel like home to me and and i have found that here in pennsylvania it's not a perfect place of course the garden my garden is far from perfect but living here where i get to experience the four seasons a little bit of heat and humidity like texas but not you know not for as long during the year has a uh, uh, it's been the home that I think the seed of it was planted in mm-hmm. that Texas home but now it's it's uh bearing fruit here in Pennsylvania so it's been a journey
0: yeah you have a wonderful description in the book at some point talking about this idea of your past and how it informs and lays the ground for your present and our you know your or any of our futures and that it's the story of you and your ancestors is like a big landscape standing at your back and if you can turn your head sideways and with your peripheral vision you can see the relationship between that multi-layered, multi-time and history landscape and the one that you are moving towards, which I thought was just a a lovely imagery. The reading of Roots and Sky, your first book, and then the reading of Placemaker, as well as just my basic understanding of you and your place in this world— This idea of making a place and being in a place and relating to a place is very integral and integrated with your own Christian faith and its teachings and lessons and tenets. I would like for you to talk to us a little bit about that relationship and the interdependence between those two things for you.
1: That's right, and and you're right to notice that these books that I've written aren't only, you know, natural history or garden writing, but they're also spiritual memoir and spiritual reflections. And my own faith as a Christian, uh, for me, just can't be separated really from what it means to me to be a gardener and be in the garden. And so, for me, um, I see God, my own Maker or my own, my Creator, as the first placemaker. So when I think about um, you know why I'm drawn to placemaking and what it might look like to do it well, then I look toward that model, and so that means as well that um, if I'm doing placemaking well, that I'm doing it for and through love mm-hmm. and joy. Um, I believe God is love and, and the origin of all this beauty in the world is love. And so if I can tap into that love in the placemaking, um, then I think I'm doing it right. And the thing about love is, um, you know, I'm often tempted in this work to count the costs, maybe the financial costs, you know, it costs money sometimes for the seeds and the bulbs and so on, or, or just the cost of time and sweat and, you know, tears when things don't go well or, you know, a storm batters the lilies. But I think if we do things for love, then we know that love, it's worthwhile. We know how powerful love is and that, um, you know, when we love a person, we don't count the costs when it comes to caring for that person. And so, I've tried to remember that in my relationship to the land. I, I don't need to count the costs and sort of add them up and say, "Is this worthwhile or not?" You know, love doesn't doesn't ask that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like that's uh, that's something I, I that is rooted in my faith that this place making work has value beyond any sense of what makes sense, like financially or in terms of you know efficiency or or productivity. Um, you know, I could go to the farmer's market and pick up my my fruits and my flowers, and I I do that as well. But um, gardening for me, placemaking for me, is about participating in this larger creative energy mm-hmm. and this, lo- this bigger love. I want to be a part of it. It's such a beautiful thing. I just want to be a part of it. I don't want to be just an observer. <laughs> I want to be a participant. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I, I do. I think that is... Absolutely part of it. and I have always found um, my own gardening to absolutely be infused with this sense of uh, something spiritually much bigger, much better, much wiser than me. And though even out of love, sometimes I, I make mistakes and see them in hindsight. Mm-hmm. and as do as do we all, I think that spiritual and heartfelt intention, it counts for something for, for me and clearly for, for you as well.
1: That's right. And I, you know, you, you mentioned this, I think it's important to note that, that love often involves heartbreak. It, mm. it does, you know, when we love, we, we risk our hearts, but I think that is what I mean by placemaking. When I say placemakers are willing to send their roots in mm-hmm. deep, mm-hmm. I think uh, uh, it's tempting to not do that, to sort of live on the surface of life because it's safer. Um, and I understand the appeal of that, and yet uh, I, I I know that the heartbreak, when it comes, it's worth it. It's worth it for the love. It's worth it for the joy. But it's good to be prepared <laughs> to know that there will be hard times, yeah. hard days.
0: Yeah, there will. If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this week we're speaking with Christy Purifoy, mother, wife, gardener, tree lover, and spiritual memoirist. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, so each and every one of us counts on the good recommendations of others to try new plants, to read our next great books, to go to a new restaurant, or to try a new podcast. It works the same way here at Cultivating Place. If you enjoy an episode or the whole series, I'd be so proud and happy and grateful if you were to share it with friends you think might enjoy it too. There are Almost 20,000 of us and growing strong, we know it resonates with gardeners and growers. If something really hits home in one of our conversations, please send me a note, tell other people, leave a comment on one of my Cultivating Place posts on Instagram or Facebook. And if you have a few minutes while you're waiting in the doctor's office or grocery store checkout, for your browser window to stop whirling or the coffee to brew in the morning, take a minute and leave Cultivating Place a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts on iTunes or on SoundCloud or Google. This is a great way for the show to reach even more new ears in our community-building and paradigm-shifting work to elevate the value and impact of gardening and other cultivations of place. It's powerful stuff, and we want to share it with everyone. As always, thank you for being here this week. Thank you for being here any week. Side note here. Have you read Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens? I fully enjoyed it. I'd love to hear if you did too. And if you haven't read it, take a look. You might just love it. Now, back to our conversation with Christy Purifoy. And here's another good recommendation. You can find her lovely words and images on Instagram at Christy Purifoy, as well as at Maplehurst Gardens. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Welcome back to our conversation with Christy Purifoy, gardener and writer. She is the author of Roots and Sky and most recently of Placemaker. She joins us this week to talk about her gardening journey and her spiritual journey and how the two interweave with one another throughout her life. We're back to hear more about her newest book, Placemaker. So let's get let's get into the structure of the book, and maybe start off with how you came to decide to write this book. When you did, um, it has a very particular structure. Describe this for listeners.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, the structure was it was a process of arriving at that because when I first sat down to think about the idea of this book. All I really had was the notion of placemaking. I felt like um, I'm I'm participating in work that matters, and I want to tell other people about it, and I want to inspire them to to perhaps take up this work and and to see nature and and the world with with new eyes. But I quickly realized that if I just sat down and told my personal stories, I lived here and it was like this, and then I moved to this place and I loved this, you know, this about the city and I love this about the country, you know, my life, um, I'm, it's not like a celebrity memoir. It's not worth reading just for, you know, the, the details of my own life. And I knew that if I was going to make a book that was itself beautiful and, uh, and a joy to read and, and, um sort of bigger than just my own ordinary life, and mine is a very ordinary life, that I I needed a structure structure that was beyond just pure memoir. And I lately have uh, just been enjoying a number of books that weave memoir in with nature writing and other kinds of storytelling. Um, I think that when a memoirist can not only communicate the details of their lives, but also pass on the source of their inspiration, then, then even if the details of their life are are things maybe I can't relate to, or, um, on their own would only be, you know, um, somewhat interesting to me when it's the life is in and the story of the life is then rooted in, in these bigger things, then that is just so compelling. An example, so one book I read a few years ago, it's called H is for Hawk. Mm-hmm. And it's uh it's a memoir, in some sense an ordinary memoir of an ordinary grief. You know, the author has lost her father. And yet she weaves her story in with her own relationship to um, a hawk and to falconry and the history of it. Well that's something I never Thought I would be interested in, but she, she made me interested and she situated almost like you set a diamond in a beautiful setting. You know, she sort of set her life in this larger setting in a way that I found really compelling. So I just, I sat down, I thought, okay, what inspires me? It's not falconry. (laughs) What is it? And I realized, oh, it's trees, it's trees, tree always trees are the link, you know, from mm-hmm. place to place and home to home for me and the stories of the trees and learning about the trees and the history the trees have seen. And and I realized, okay, it's the trees. Now, what does that look like? And uh, sometimes what it looked like surprised me. I don't know if you remember earlier in the book, one of the chapters is called Citrus Grove, mm-hmm. but that, Chapter title actually doesn't refer to a real citrus grove. It was just the name of a, <laughs> a rather mundane apartment complex where right. <laughs> we lived in, my husband and I, in East Texas. And so, um, I think that too. You asked earlier about the hashtag. We are placemakers, and that "we" is important to me to say that we are placemakers, whether we live in a Victorian farmhouse with a with a you know rich history. Or an anonymous apartment building um, in an East Texas town. We are still placemakers. We get to be placemakers. And and so the trees link those very different stories for me. And I hope for the reader, just make for a book that is um, not just teaching them something, but also just giving them pleasure, giving them beauty, giving them enjoyment. Yeah there
0: is beautiful universal in your particulars, which is mm. uh, I think one of the great um, traits of uh, a reading that anyone can connect to I think w- when I consider how you weave, which I will sort of describe for for listeners, you weave your your current, place there at Maplehurst, your sort of found home place, Uh, back and forth with its ongoing work and needs and your relationship to it, with the places you have lived throughout your life, with the sort of ongoing study of trees, different trees, history of trees, some shrubs as well, because you're, you frequently refer to Michael Durr's um, encyclopedia of trees and shrubs. And so it's not all specifically iconic large trees, but you talk Mm -hmm. about crepe myrtles and you talk about roses. And so this sort of three part story that we have going on throughout the book, I think is very effective and does kind of pull us into and out of memoir and present kind of journal keeping as well as some study beyond that. And and woven all together, it makes a very substantial um, storyline that provokes and asks us to consider certain questions that you are also exploring as you go through these different Mm -hmm. narratives.
1: That's right. The questions were so important. I knew not only that they would fuel the narrative, that they would um, keep readers asking what happens next, Mm -hmm. but also these were questions that I Was really asking (laughs) that I, as I began writing, I wasn't sure of the answers. And even actually at the end, (laughs) you know, I wasn't (laughs) sure of all the answers, but I felt that I had at least written myself to some new places where I could stand, you know, ground that would hold me. Mm -hmm. But so the questions were important, not only as a literary device and a, you know, a framing, you know, and how to structure the narrative, which they were, but just for me personally, I was asking questions like, um, does this placemaking work really matter and does it last? Am I engaged in something lasting? Which I think, I think that's a question whether they realize it or not. A lot of gardeners are living with because we know that you know a week away, a month away, a year away from our gardens, and the gardens begin to disappear. Mm-hmm. Our work is so ephemeral, and yet I do believe that there's something lasting, something um, really world-changing about that work, that activity but what is it and and i i needed to just explore these stories slowly and kind of write myself towards some uh, beginnings of answers not final answers but beginnings of answers and um, i'm i'm still doing that still still asking these questions still trying to live into the answers
0: yeah well i'm pretty sure that If and when you find the final answer, then (laughs) you've probably moved on to the next place Uh, because that that is the work of life, right? And I think that um, this is one of the the questions that you are exploring in this book, especially through your lens of the family you're creating, the careers you're following, the different Mm -hmm. places you live, and your own spiritual journey – these are questions that I do believe we're all asking, and the fact that you don't necessarily come to an answer, but you come to, as you as you describe, a, a new place about how you're feeling about this question, with a clarity that there isn't an answer. There is mm-hmm. just a hopefully greater understanding. The longer we we live, and I think this ties right back to the humility you were referencing in your description of the process of writing the book because for me that is one of the greatest gifts of the garden itself is that the mm-hmm. more i am engaged with it the more it humbles me and that seems like good work for both of us the garden and me the mm-hmm. yeah christy purifoy is a gardener a writer and a mother She is a tender of many things. In her newest book, Placemaker, she grapples with the joys and challenges of such work. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. So, thinking out loud here this week, so many of these questions, the glorifying and heartbreaking around cultivating place come back to a faith of some kind a leaning into the universal life and energy and integrity and intention that is bigger than us deeper and longer than we can see and comprehend as christy indicates throughout her book and even in this conversation a single tree can illustrate this idea daily to its larger environment trees they have a different time scale, a different by whole scales of magnitude. I don't know a nature-loving gardener that doesn't respond to the trees of their place as seasonal sentinels, as unspoken representatives of home, and as divine bridges and intermediaries. Throughout the book Placemaker, Christy acknowledges her own reverence for trees and their symbolic power in the realm of her own Christian tradition. I wanted to share two quotes that embody this. Somewhere towards the middle to the end of the book, she writes, Trees are the backbone of everything. Trees aren't the ministry of the church, and yet trees spread their roots throughout the stories the Bible tells. A few pages later, she cites a pastor friend of hers, Adele Calhoun, as expressing it this way, trees carry theology in their veins. There's something about that poetic encompassing of the great presence of the trees in our midst. Don't you think so? Now back to our conversation with Christy, gardener, author, mother, placemaker, and question asker. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In her newest book and in her daily gardening, writing, and family life, Christy Purifoy grapples with some fundamental questions about what it means to be human and in deeply rooted relationship with a place. She takes on some hard questions— Like how, in making a place for ourselves, we are inevitably unmaking some or all of the place that was there before. I think when we're young, we're sort of like we're human, and you know, you can see this culturally when we were young, and just in our individual lives and our individual lives as gardeners, we're like. It's good. We're, we're doing good things. And mm-hmm. then the more you learn and the more you look and the greater height you can see from, you're like, maybe it's not so good. Yeah. And, you know, in this time of climate change and cultural disruption mm-hmm. and often despair, this idea of how we make a place and one that in order for us to make a place, we unmade another place. And then the fact that we make this place with love and good intention and it's ephemeral nature, that complexity is really interesting to me. Talk a little bit about that.
1: It's, oh, you, you put it so well. I, I feel as if what I'm learning is how to continue in the work, continue to garden, continue to tend and keep with grief but not despair. I think uh, I'm often tempted to despair. I'm tempted to say, I'm hopeless. I keep making mistakes. I can't do this. (laughs) Um, I have such good intentions and then I fail or I do things thinking it's best and then discover it's not. And um, I I learned that in part studying trees in this book and realizing how many of our well-intentioned efforts to care for forests in particular, we've, we're learning just how far off the mark we've been. And Mm -hmm. so that's, it's humbling to the point of despair and it can be tempting to say, well, then I'm out. Never Um, you know, it's hopeless. So I'm learning to move past (laughs) that moment of despair (laughs) and that moment of just, uh, you know, I, I can't do anything right to, um, to another place, which is still aware it's, you know, my eyes are still open and there is grief (laughs) for changes, for mistakes, for losses that feel maybe inevitable or not inevitable, but they're there. And then to continue and to say, um, retreat is not an option or, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, there's still joy and love available and I'm still invited to participate. And so it's a tension. It's such a tension. And some days, um, I'm more aware of the despair. Yeah. <laughs> Other days I'm more aware of the bliss and the joy, But always there is that grief. Just recently, I had an experience um, only a few weeks ago. I um, locally attended a a party in celebration of Placemaker, the book coming out. And so, a local friend um, who's actually done work on this old home, and I wrote about the work uh, in the book, he had managed to find something I'd never seen before. He had found old photographs of this home of Maplehurst Mm. and the land around it. And I, 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 was so grateful and overjoyed to see these pictures. And then I looked at one and I saw just the ex- the trees that were growing in front of the house that are there no longer. And I saw an expanse of grass that we had just recently dug up and covered with a new driveway. <laughs> now we need that driveway. We are using it. It is, and it's, I must say, the curve of it is lovely. It's a good driveway. It needed to be done. <laughs> and yet my first feeling looking at that picture was a pang of, oh, I made a change and it's, I don't know if something was lost, this big expanse of grass, these old trees. I, I can look at this photo and see something has been lost, but of course, something else has been gained, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I've got to learn to, to move on and let it go and accept that, accept that, um, those inevitable changes without being, uh, becoming mired in them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is not easy. And I know that, um, as I'm learning to do it with place, I'm learning to do it in other areas of my life. I'm learning to do it as a mom. You know, my my um, my babies are growing, growing, growing so quickly, and I'm always letting go of their little baby selves <laughs> and their young child selves, and learning to look forward to their their adolescent and adult selves. And that's not always easy either. And I think there's so many areas where. Um, if we can learn this wisdom, <laughs> yeah. then uh, it just applies to just about everything. But it's for me that the, where I'm learning to to aim for, to seek out is this place of grief, but not despair.
0: Right. And I think that grief is a form of respect in many ways, mm-hmm. that it is an acknowledgement of choices that were made that if we, you know, had the the wisdom of hindsight maybe we wouldn't have made them that exact same way but we made them whether individually or collectively you have a, a lovely several interludes in the book where you you acknowledge and recognize that all of the places that you know white people's colonial ancestors mm-hmm. created Uh, We're taking over someone else's places of, you know, the indigenous peoples who were here placemaking prior to us and all that they had seen and done were um, destroyed, were taken over, were, you know. We we built driveways and Exactly. And and there is a respect in acknowledging that and then trying to make our best way forward from here and not become paralyzed, which I think at this point, especially anyone who's paying any attention, the risk of paralysis is huge right now. Mm-hmm. And um I which I, I think is part of the calling for your book and your work as as well as mine is that we do have this faith that gardening that cultivating this relationship as consciously and respectfully as we can it it has the potential to do better than some of our choices in the past yes yeah and yes that and it kind of brings me um to this idea of wilderness because i think it's it it feels a little bit to me like we are in a wilderness right now um And Mm -hmm. both metaphorically and and literally. And you really explore this idea in in a lot of its ways, um, its biblical um, context as well as its context environmentally and sort of the scariness of it, but also the gifts of it. Will you walk listeners through that a little bit, Christy?
1: That's right. You know, I use that metaphor of the wilderness in a way that – those of Christian and Jewish faith have for many years. So the the idea of, uh, of a time of a sort of desert season in one's life where you don't feel rooted and you're wandering, <laughs> you're seeking, you're searching, and, and it's a dry time. And I have lived in places that felt very much like that. And yet looking back, I've seen how ultimately fruitful those places were in my life, that I needed that time of seeking, or I needed that time of perhaps loneliness um, in order to, you know, seek out uh, wisdom from within, and and so on, or that time to listen, you know, when the noise of usual living was quieted. So I I can see that the uh, the gifts the wilderness gives, um, and yet as placemakers and as we consider. Just globally, you know, what we need to do to care for this earth at a time when, um, you know, the news, it's dire, it's serious, and it's heartbreaking. Um, As much as we can look back and we can see the gifts spiritually, perhaps, that the wilderness offers, at the same time, we don't want to create deserts. (laughs) We don't want to create wilderness places. We want to be a part of making fruitful Places where water flows, and so what does that look like? And so the desert, I think, and the wilderness—they can mean, you know, the metaphors are, are beautifully multifaceted. They can yeah. mean many things, and um, it's worth spending time with, you know, what they mean to me. For instance, you know, one thing I write about in the book is um, poison ivy, <laughs> 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 and uh, you know, it—it it has been—I have met poison ivy literally in the wilderness. And felt the sting of it and the horror of it. And yet when I step back and when I give it its place and I respect it and I learn to recognize it, I see um, the gifts it gives, you know, that it's it's a a good native plant. But then I also see that this other element, something I learned in the writing, that poison ivy has actually become more wilderness, more potent, more poisonous because of our changing climate. Mm -hmm. And so then I realize wow, wilderness isn't just this scary other thing, it's it's the ugliness within us now manifest out there. You know, the changes that we have wrought now are making this poison ivy wreak, you know, more havoc. It's it's incredibly um, just so much more po- potent than it was even in the 1960s. Right. So, goodness, I trace this metaphor, I trace this metaphor, and it, it continually has more to offer and more to teach me mm-hmm. and uh, more to consider. Um, it's, it's certainly... Uh, a, a multifaceted metaphor for me, and so, gosh, the wilderness has been a gift. But the wilderness is also a hard thing that I think we need to learn how to um, how to learn from it, so that we're not, you know, uh, multiplying wildernesses in the world. <laughs> right. And, and yeah, and it is—it's a troublesome
0: metaphor because, of course, mm-hmm. uh, when we use it in its metaphorical meaning of paucity or loss or lack or scary um, and, you know, something that we are fighting to survive against, it really, it puts us in that narrative that has brought us to the environmental place we sit in, uh, where wilderness as an incredibly glorious, rich, biodiverse, you know, symphony of um interwoven and and interdependent systems and and organisms um is you know i then come to understand that the wilderness of my own ignorance and um fears are are far greater than any other wilderness And 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 in the book you you definitely give this a lot of space as well as an understanding that in wilderness and its richness um even though it sometimes appears from the outset to be empty, it's in the richness of that vessel of emptiness that we, we are found.
1: Oh, it's so, so true. And that that uh, theme of emptiness was one I I just found myself returning to again yeah. and again and realizing that, you know, on the surface, emptiness seems so terrible. And yet, of course, if you're a gardener, you look at that empty soil and if it's dark and rich, then you see it as as, as, as a kind of fullness an emptiness yes. that is full or yes. preparing to be full and it's beautiful and it's right. powerful. It's that, it's an incredibly powerful emptiness. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's, um, yeah, I think gardening can give you, placemaking can give you eyes to see, uh, things that, that looked one way and, and you realize, um, actually what, you know, what is given, um, you know, when it it's in something that just feels like loss or feels like nothing, mm-hmm. um, how much is there? You know, winter is another metaphor. If if you garden, then you know that winter too can be incredibly fruitful for certain plants, certain flowers. We need winter. We have right. to have it. And so it's no longer just the the empty, bleak, barren season. Mm-hmm. It's a fruitful season of expectancy and waiting and preparation. It's it's both.
0: Yeah. And that is a recurring phrase in the the book that you come to, which is um, is life just a litany of things, items lost in winter? And that idea that it's the the clearing away that allows the opportunity for regenerative regrowth, or even the clearing away of some things allow us the eyes to see something else we couldn't see there before, just as you were describing. As gardeners, you you come to realize that um, when you look at the soil, you can either see it as empty or you can see it as teeming with mm-hmm. life and the basis of all creation.
1: Exactly. I think another place we see that is in decay or rot, yeah. like a fallen tree in the forest, you know, can become paradoxically so fruitful as you know all the bacteria come and all the little critters and creatures uh and and just how um unexpected that is that this this death could be fruitful this death could actually uh be life-giving yeah is i find so much hope in that
0: yeah when you look at your your garden as it stands now um You've done a lot of work, you and your husband and your community of people from window restoration to, um, you know, woodworkers and tree care people. And, you know, as you referred to in the beginning, it's a lot of time and money and love and invested heart and heartbreak. Um You've created this beautiful formal rose garden now off to one side with a beautiful little shed and folly, something that you you dreamed of for a long time, and um, and you created that. Just as with your your children, who you know it it took you some time to uh, become pregnant with at least two of them, and that that period of time was full of anxiety and emptiness and hope and it it kind of builds as part of the metaphor in in the book or the interwoven like world within worlds of metaphors that that you work with for us as you're looking at your your garden now your trees your, your you have a, a double line of silver maples down uh, what was the original entrance to the the home and the home was a larger estate that was then sub-developed so you're kind of surrounded by suburbs which is again sort of an interesting <laughs> metaphor christy and you've created this place and you're caring for it really carefully with a lot of input from from all parts of your joined lives um what are what are your hopes for the wider impacts of of your gardening the way you're doing it now i mean you you Referred to sort of a hesitancy over your your flower garden, and you talk about this in the book. But somehow you're called to do this, and so you you honor that calling, and you are you are doing this. What what are your hopes with some of these things?
1: That's true, and even just hearing you articulate the history and then the question um, helps me to see that when I came here. I had perhaps a more literal understanding of how the land could feed us. Mm. So the first thing we did was we, we built uh, a large vegetable garden and, and all these raised beds and um, chickens in their coop next door. And so immediately in that first spring and summer, we were fed by the land and our kids and our guests. Uh, we were fed by this place. And as I've, I've shifted into more and more flower growing, I think I struggled with that for a while. Well, then, what is the purpose? Is this an indulgence? Is this an extravagance? Um, Is this just a somewhat uh, wasteful hobby? (laughs) And what I'm learning is that really it has grown into a vision for feeding myself, my own soul, my family. But everyone who comes into this place, as we love to gather people in this place and share this place with others, which also I think it's the sharing of a place that is integral to placemaking. Mm-hmm. I realize that we need to we need to feed on beauty. We we uh, you know the Bible says man can't live on bread alone. I, I believe that. I think we need more. And I think once once our stomachs are full of bread, um, we do need more. Uh, we need the bread and the water, but we need um, we need beauty. We need loveliness. And uh, so, of course, in a natural sense, these flowers are also important for, um, you know, just being a part of our ecosystems and um, being there for pollinators. We can think of it on that level, but I think of it just more on that that spiritual level of um, knowing that when I invite people into this place, I am serving them a feast or I'm trying to, I'm trying mm-hmm. to, and inviting them into a place of peace and it is a place of peace because there's so much beauty here, because um, uh, you mentioned the word symphony earlier, the symphony of the wilderness. And then I think there's also a, a little symphony of the flower garden. And yeah. so inviting people in to hear that music. And I, I'm beginning to really claim and accept that, that that's important work. That matters. That is mm-hmm. a very real and tangible gift that, that I can give myself my family and, and everyone else who comes into the space. I just this morning, as I wandered and saw all the roses blooming, I, I was tempted. I thought, how could I, cause you're right. We're surrounded now by a suburban development. How could I get a message out to the neighbors? Any of you who want to wander through the garden this week, I, I invite you because it's so beautiful. I want more people to, mm-hmm. to be able to soak it in. So, yeah, I I realized that I'm learning just the different ways that um, we can be sustained by the earth. And so this garden is in transition. Quite literally, we made the decision. It was a somewhat hard decision to um, tear out the vegetable garden last year that we had poured so much into over the past six years, and that became a new parking area. I mean, we literally paved paradise and put in a parking lot, which, (laughs) oh, my goodness, I I, I'm almost ashamed. To Hugh Joni it.
0: Mitchell, right?
1: <laughs> yes. And yet I know that um, guests will be able to park, they will be able to gather, and they'll be nourished in other ways, um, you know, by the flowers. Although I have to say, I've do. I'm, I'm I've got my eye on the backyard and I'm, you know, spotting out those corners where I can stick a few raised beds and at least grow, you know, my spring lettuces and, and mm-hmm. a few other, you know, brandywine tomatoes. I, I'd love to have those. So I'll, I'll sneak some vegetables in for sure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, and it, this observation that you're making about the importance of the work, it really taps into something that I feel so strongly in the course of all the conversations I've had um, for this program. And that is that too often this concept of being a gardener is – um, is dismissed or diminished by yes. by being described or portrayed by ourselves, even not just by mainstream media or the outer world who would like to have a comparison study and productivity and profit margins, but we do it ourselves. Of like, oh, we're just gardening, or it's you know, it's just my garden. And in fact, I would argue vehemently that in making these places we are we are creating our best selves and we are supporting our best selves to do whatever the work is we do best in this world and clearly for you a lot of that comes back to um, sharing and building community and reaching out to community and that is something that we desperately need in this world and um yeah. So I'm, I'm on your side yes. in this. You oh, just I'm so glad. love your heart and out of right. that. And you're right.
1: It's uh it's work I do not only in the gardening, but also in the writing as I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I feel so um, lucky, I guess, that those two um, jobs, callings, vocations, whatever you call them have intertwined in my life because I think, um, uh, gardeners need and the gardener, the garden, the gardener in me needed the writer <laughs> to, to ask the questions and communicate. And essentially in writing to put gardening in its rightful, higher, more valuable place. Um, yeah. because you're right, it is such essential work. It is not, uh, it, it's just absolutely essential the way that trees are essential to, to the planet and mm-hmm. to, you know, the, uh, uh, uh all of us who breathe and live and, you know, um, it's, it's essential. And so, um, that's how I really see the, the placemaking as for me, a combination, not only of cultivating the land, but then also writing about that work. Yeah.
0: I would love to end by having you read a passage of your choosing from the book, Christy, if you would like to do that.
1: I would love to do that. Thank you so much for the invitation. And I am flipping pages here. This comes from uh, a chapter called Arboretum. And an arboretum is simply a garden made up of trees, which I love. If peace is a state of harmony, if it is a kind of wholeness or completeness, then we will never find it by running away from broken things and messy places. We will find it in truth. We will make it when we draw near to the mess with shovels and paint cans. We may have a dream of peace that looks like a country porch or an isolated mountaintop, and we may receive peace in those places like deep breaths of fresh air, but we realize our dream of peace only when we come down to that place where mountain meets valley town, country meets suburbia, city meets garden, or our past meets our present. We achieve harmony not by walling ourselves off from difficult neighbors, but by reaching out to them and opening our gates to them. The work of wholeness and the cultivation of peace will carry us right on out and into the realm of chaos. It will lead us to edges in the land, in our hearts, in our memories, how frightened we will sometimes be how hopeless we will sometimes feel. And yet here is where we will make gardens. Here we will eat the fruit of them. And when joy comes in the morning, as joy always does come, we will clap our hands with all the trees of the field.
0: Thank you so much for being a guest on the program today. It was an honor to speak with you, Christy.
1: Oh, thank you. I so enjoyed our conversation. And now I'm ready to head back out into that garden. (laughs) (laughs) Christy
0: Purifoy lives, gardens, and writes with her family in rural Pennsylvania, amidst many trees and her beloved garden. She's the author of several books about her relationships to place and her cultivating of life in her places. These books include Roots and Sky and her newest, Placemaker, cultivating places of comfort, beauty, and peace. Christy is also the co-host of a podcast entitled Out of the Ordinary. Join us again next week as the conversations continue when we speak with Courtney Allen with the Native Plant Trust out of Boston, Massachusetts. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from Christie's lovely garden life, go to Notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a conversation. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.